KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Acomando. Beth Acomando. And today's Cinema Junkie podcast is shaken, not stirred. Mr. Bond. Oh, yes. Mr. Bond. My name's Bond. James Bond. My name is Bond. James Bond. The name's Bond. James Bond. The name's Bond. James Bond. Now you're on this. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Do you want to play it easy or the hard way? When you remove Mr. Bond's heart, there should just be enough time for him to watch it stop beating. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. You look pale, Mr. Bond. I hope I didn't frighten you. Well, you see, I've always been a nervous passenger. Some men just don't like to be driven. No, some men just don't like to be taken for a ride. Welcome. Please fasten seatbelt. You like close shaves, don't you? Your new BMW 750. All the usual refinements. Machine guns, rockets, the GPS tracking system. Where do you hide your gold knuckles in this outfit? Oh, I uh, never carry weapons after business hours. Yeah? So you're off duty? I'm completely defenseless. James Bond, who only has to make love to a woman, and she starts to hear heavenly choir singing. She repents and immediately returns to the side of right and virtue. But not this one. Well? can't win them all. I think you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur. Touché. You know, this sort of behavior could qualify as sexual harassment. Really? What's the penalty for that? Someday you have to make good on your innuendos. And kindly omit the customary byplay with 007. He's dining with me and I don't want him to be late. Dinner? Um, no, look, I'm sorry. I can't. Uh, something big's come up. Oh, don't worry. 007 always comes back. That's right. And James Bond is scheduled to come back for the 25th time in the official 007 franchise in 2019. And today, I'll be talking about all things Bond with actor Tom Stewart, who created a one-man show for the San Diego International Fringe Festival called One Man Bond, in which he takes us through all six actors and all 24 Bond films in less than 60 minutes. But before we go off on our MI6 mission, I want to highlight a film that comes out next week that has a mission of its own. Boots Riley's directorial debut, Sorry to Bother You, is about a young man named Cassius Green. And you need to hear his name said out loud. He's just trying to survive in the not-too-distant future. Sorry to Bother You may be Boots Riley's first film, but he comes to filmmaking after decades of success as a rapper, music producer, and activist organizer. He studied filmmaking back in college, but got pulled away from film by music and in 1991 created the political activist hip-hop group The Coop. Sorry to Bother You deals with race, capitalism, workers' rights, art, and activism. He describes it as an absurdist dark comedy with magical realism and sci-fi inspired by the world of telemarketing. Here's the trailer. AK-47 
cash. How much longer I gotta wait for my money? God made this land for all of us. Greedy people like you wanna hog it to yourself and your family and- Me and my family? Yeah. Cassius, I'm your fucking uncle. I just really need a job. 40 on two. This is telemarketing. Stick to the script. Hey, hello. Uh, Mr. Davison, Cassius Green here. Sorry to bust. Let me give you a tip. You want to make some money here? Use your white voice. My white voice? I'm not talking about Will Smith's wife. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer. This is Langston from Regal View. As always, we'll be getting that out to you right away. You're doing so good with the voice thing. Holla, 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 holla. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The film announces a bold new screen talent but one marked by assurance and maturity from decades of work mixing art and politics in music. Riley not only has something to say, but he has the artistry to say it in a fresh new style that demands attention. Although the issues he tackles in the film feel very much of the moment, he says he first started writing the screenplay back in 2011. Strangely enough, it's just as relevant. It was as relevant then as it is today, you know, contrary to popular belief. This economic system that we're in, which is the motor that's pushing all of the craziness that's going on in our world, was the same then. I mean, we could have put this movie out in 2012 or 1972, and it would have been relevant. Matter of fact, Mr., which is just Mr. with seven underscores, the character that Omari Hardwick plays, he had the line in our 2014 version that got published on McSweeney's, uh, he had the line, Worry-free is making America great again. It's just a, a movie that has a class analysis, so that analysis allows you to understand how the system works and, and puts all the chaos that we get from our news feed into a working framework that allows you to understand how ways that we might be able to fight things back. But the news and most media usually doesn't supply that class analysis. So all the events that we hear usually seem like they're just like coming out of nowhere or they're crazy and, you know, they end up making people kind of shrug their shoulders and hunch their back and walk off into the distance instead of uh, feeling like they can do anything about it. One thing I found interesting in, in your film in terms of kind of the tone and the take you have is that you don't really fault Cassius as much as you might see in other films that are kind of satiric or, or you know, making political commentary. And I thought it was kind of fresh to have that take where you, you seem a little more sympathetic towards him than some other films tackling this same issue might be. Yeah, I think that's because I have a background as an organizer, which I think is what I would say is different than an activist. So, I mean, because to be an organizer, for some people, the, the term is interchangeable. But you can't really say you're an organizer if you haven't done there are a few things, and some of that being like grassroots organizing where you get people in their place of work or place of that they live to try to do things around those areas. Doing that makes you approach politics less in a, from a standpoint of, you know, you don't agree with me, so therefore you're on the other side of the line, than to, to trying to figure out, okay, you don't agree with me. 
how do I get this person to agree with me? How do I get them on their team? It's not my, I'd be working against my ultimate goal to just try to show that person that they're wrong and smash them down in some way because my goal is to to have the working class uh, united. I read an interview with you, and uh, I was impressed at how many kind of diverse influences you cited from music and literature and film. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the kinds of things that have influenced you as an artist. You know, I'm always searching for people that are doing things creatively in whatever art form. I mean, I even had a certain... So so literature, um, definitely, and uh, other films music. I get excited about things, even the things that didn't all the way work, but they had something that that artist was trying to do that might inspire me or, or, you know, give way to things. Like, so for instance, I mean, it's not the same because we're talking about Francis Ford Coppola, but I think he had a film that really didn't work in a lot of ways, uh, which was called uh, One from the Heart. I liked what he was doing with transitions and reflections in that movie. He did some things that that were practical transitions that I wasn't going to have the budget to be able to do stuff, certain things that were inspired by that. But one thing he does with reflection when uh, Terry Gar is like working in a window, I forget what it is, it inspired something in the movie There's a which doesn't happen in that same way, but it got me thinking about reflections. But, yeah, as an artist, I'm always striving for finding other things that that get me excited. And that kind of comes maybe from hip-hop and what we would call digging in the crates, which is how many of us got our education. I also try to look for new things in life to get me inspired through that process. I, I went through a period of somewhat embarrassing period that people don't know about between my second and third albums where I say that I stopped doing it, stopped doing music just to do this organization called the Young Comrades, which I did. But during that time, I also got slightly obsessed with miniature. I I had this idea of all of these rooms I would make that would illuminate certain things about the world and you know, like there'd be a prison and there'd be a certain kind of a living room. With, and I was collecting all the stuff, going to doll places and other wherever I could get miniature stuff and had collected like half of a garage worth of stuff. And then one day I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this and 12 people are going to see it. So I got rid of all that stuff and never really went forward with it. But exploring these ideas these different ways of making art is something I I always try to take it into whatever else I'm doing. Well, and the film is such a genre-bending film because you've got magical realism, you've got science fiction, you've got social commentary, you've got humor. What was kind of feeding into that? I think it's just the way I think and the way I talk. And I think what also allowed that to happen is that I've been an artist for 20 years that hasn't worried about whether it's perceived as being done right. You know, I have songs that I'll let mistakes be in there. I also, having made art, also know that there, there is 
something very useful about doing some things that people understand. And you can play with that and you can use that as leverage to do the other stuff that you want that's more spectacular. And I also wanted people to be engaged with this film in a different way. You know, I didn't want people to be like, when you see a heist movie and they've done the the team building montage, you know you can go to the bathroom after that because it's going to be a second before their first problem that they overcome happens. I wanted people to be on their toes and know that they don't know what's going to happen. Um, Film was an early love that I'm going to be focusing on now. Um, And, uh, yeah, so I, I think there are different things you can do with film than with music. With music, some of the benefits are that you put these things out there, these emotions, these ideas, and it lives with people for their whole life. And it plays and it takes on different meanings and it's not yours anymore very quickly. With film, I get to kidnap people for an hour and 45 minutes and make them be in the world that I've created to make them have certain feelings. And that's more more fun. Do you see art always being kind of wrapped up with some sort of activism? Yeah, I see art as communication. I think that only way to make great art is to be passionate about something else other than making art because that passion guides your aesthetic in a different way that's not following or not flippant and or not just putting things together to see what can happen. But my point is is that you need to be passionate about something. It either I don't care whether it's love, sex, making the world better, whatever. It, and and so I think that all art is connected to that the artists or group of artists' political ideas, whether they want it to or not, even if it's just that we're going to make something that makes it seem like the world is, is all, all right, then that's a political standpoint. Because me, I, I as a human being, uh, want to be part of making the world better. Anything that I do or produce is going to, because I'm trying to also be honest as an artist and put my view of the world into my art, I need to do that. Like, otherwise, what people do is they, they, they end up falling into cliche because most of what we, what we create, the, a lot of times the art that we tend to create is more influenced by other artists' visions of the world than really our own real life. And I always have to check myself for that. And when I'm checking myself for that, I have to decide what I really think about a situation. And what I really think about the situation is going to have be, be connected to larger ideas about the world. And that's going to come into my artwork all the time. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time and, and for making this film. It was great. Thank you. Thanks so much for talking about it. That was writer-director Boots Riley, whose provocative new film, Sorry to Bother You, opens next week, and it demands to be seen. Now to Bond, James Bond. San Diego International Fringe Festival just ended, and one of my favorites from the 11 days of eyeball-busting shows was Tom Stewart's One Man Bond. 
As a fan of Bond since my earliest days, I was thrilled at the 007 geekery on display in his show, as well as the impressive showmanship of taking on the entire Bond franchise in an hour. Since the franchise is at a turning point with Daniel Craig's announced departure, I thought it would be the perfect time to geek out about James Bond with someone who's just immersed himself in the entire canon of films. But first, let's hear how his one-man show starts. Doctor No, racism in the book, racism in the film. Don't turn away from a Jamaican because he'll shoot you in the back. Wheat a la bon, cat. Why are we all speaking in French? We're in London. I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. Hat! Money Penny, give us a kiss before they declare what I'm doing, sexual harassment. I'll give you 30 more years before I stop pretending I like it. Bond our men in Kingston's disappeared. Get on a plane. Can it wait, Tim? There's a woman in my flat playing golf with one of my shirts. Jamaica. No, she did it all by herself. Welcome to Kingston, Mr. Bond. We've lost the file on Dr. No. Well, that Chinese woman in your office probably stole it. Why'd you say that? Well, this is a racist film. Didn't you hear the theme song? Hold it. I'm Felix Slider, but don't worry too much about that. It'll be a different actor next time. I'm with the CIA. CIA? Finally, someone is more racist than I am. Speaking of racism, this is Quarrel. He's a big black man with bulging eyes who thinks trucks are dragons. You think I'm racist? You ain't seen nothing yet. Shut up and read your racist dialogue. I don't know nothing about nothing. Actual line! <laughs> There's something in the bed sheets. Is it morning wood? No, it's a tarantula! Kill, spider with, soundtrack! Thanks for taking me to Crafty Island, Quarrel. Sorry I'm late, I was just using a woman sexually before handing her to police and shooting an unarmed man. Coming, Felix? Now we Americans just wait until the hard work's done and claim all the credit. Let's camp on the shore in full view of anyone who happens to be passing. Coming out of the sea naked, except I'm not naked, just a flesh-colored suit. I'm Honey Rider. Knife! Well, you're a castration threat. I'll have to coerce you to have sex with me so I can hold on to my fragile masculinity or shit with it caught. I'm Dr. No. I'm a disabled villain. It's going to be a thing. I have metal hands and this is totally not going to be my downfall. Oh no, I'm falling down. If only I could grip. All right, honey, let's go and have sex in a dinghy before I leave you in the sea and go back to a woman who appreciates Scottish sports. Tom, you have just come off of the San Diego International Fringe Festival where you did a show, a one-man show, called One Man Bond. So let me ask, where did your love for James Bond start? Do you remember the first time you saw a Bond movie? I do, yes. I mean, this is more by putting it together retrospectively, but I, I uh, in, in Britain, uh, when I was growing up, Bond films were always shown on public holidays. Um, that was the that was the tradition, and back then there was a limited number of channels, so it was real event television. I'm pretty sure it was Moonraker because I have no <laughs> I I have no memory of a Bond before certain shots and images in Moonraker, and it would have been a holiday Monday sometime. Yeah, I think I think it was it just it seemed incredibly this is odd to say actually, but it seemed incredibly contemporary to me. If it, if, if it was Moonraker, it, it could have also been View to a Kill. They, they seemed the most stylish pieces of anything I'd ever seen in my life. The colours, the music. Where are you? Why do you hide? Where is that moonlight train that leads to your side? Just like the moon, break a go. 
but I do remember that, that it was part of a, a really big event and uh, it was very much gathered around the television. And yes, and it seemed like a, a completely different world from the one I belonged to. So you started with Moonraker and you yeah. still became a fan. I'm amazed. Yes. Well, I mean, I, I, I had the set. Yes, I know. But it's, it, it's since become my least favorite Bond film uh, by, by some distance. But um, at the time, I think uh, I, I still had a sense that this was something very interesting and important. Um, obviously, the fact that, that it was such a big deal when they were on TV, uh, I would have got the sense of that as a child. But... Um, you know, this the, everyone's kind of familiarity with it was uh, very attractive to me. The, so, you know, different generations of my family were uh, seemed to know Bond as if they were, you know, a close friend, <laughs> which was interesting to me. So I, I kind of just fed into that and without really knowing what Bond was or, or, or who it was or what the Bond films were, I very quickly adjusted to them as something that was part of... Uh, British cultural life um, and family life. I love how you deal with Moonraker in the show, especially after hearing you talk about how Moonraker was your gateway to Bond. And what inspired you to turn your passion for Bond into a one-man show? Uh, a few different, a few different factors. First of all, uh, in the past year, I set up a theatre company, Lonesome Whistle Productions, that was devoted to developing innovative forms of solo theatre. So that's where the one-man part of it came from. Beyond that, I was very interested in adding to the kinds of theatrical works that condense great canons of culture into a small amount of stage time. So thinking in terms of the, the reduced Shakespeare company or um, a, a more kind of a, a pop, more kind of pop culture version would be the one-man Star Wars trilogy, which was a, a big hit at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival some years ago, and I actually saw it uh, at the time. To sort of take that to another level by, by doing it with the Bond films, which is sort of to assert that the Bond films are the, this... Uh, you know, are as significant a contribution to to world culture as uh, Shakespeare or Dickens, but also, you know, also to say that you know there's a precedent for this kind of theatre, and to do it with 24 films rather than say a trilogy seemed like a, a really great challenge to me to do. And the the other element was really thinking of you know how do you how do you bring film and film language onto onto the stage, and thinking of uh, ways it's been done before through things like Mystery Science Theatre 2000 and Rift Tracks and to so you know try and find a way to do a live commentary on a film on stage um, and so all those things kind of coagulated into the the show that um, that I did. All right so in tackling this what was your approach did you kind of like write jot down little notes from each of the films did you go back and rewatch the whole canon how was what was this process like the process was um i i first of all it, the, the bond films are kind of lodged in my memory certain images lines and i found myself going back to the films really just to kind of check that my memory was correct. And this was kind of interesting because there, there were things which 
I thought I'd imagined happening in the films, which, of course, when I went back to the films, I found, yes, they did happen. And, they're, they're, you know, outrageous pieces of sexism and, and racism and, um, and just, just, general, just general prejudice, really, that I thought couldn't possibly be there in a film from 1984 or, for, you know, or even, you know, into the 2000s and, the, and to find that they were absolutely there. But then watching the films back, you know, I, I, would, I would see things that I'd never observed before. And it, it was just, it, it was about finding a way to kind of bring unity and, to these films and see what, what, are the, what are the major themes of the series. Because, of course, one of the unique and wonderful things about the Bond films is that, unlike many other major film franchises, they, they lack continuity. You know, they, they really do draw a line in the sand at the end of every film. I mean, there's a couple of exceptions to that, but pretty much it, that, that goes for all of them. They just stop. Uh, it's like a reset clock every time. And so in adapting all the films into one hour, I had to get some sense of continuity between them. And that was mainly kind of thematic. Then you sort of think, well, it, it, you know, it, try and treat this as one story with a through line and what does that look like there's obviously comic potential in that because they're not consistent from film to film and the and the backstory changes all the time so yeah it, it was it was very much it was that and also i think uh, it really started off with a an alternative screenplay as if the bond films were all one film and i had to sort of transcribe the screenplay in a way that would play as one hour of of stage time so that meant kind of how would you describe this scene in written form and then then finding a way to theatricalize it so it was a very it was a very fluid process in 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 that sense but uh it was it was interesting because you get a very different perspective on the films now you mentioned going back to these films and finding sexism and racism (laughs) and things like this we're at a weird point i found in fandom where you know you have the star wars fans demanding that last jedi be removed from the canon and raising money to try and remake it and things like that where there's this kind of weird bent on fandom right now but as a fan of Bond, and I'm a huge fan of Bond, I, I grew up on them from, you know, my parents took me to see them when they came out in the theater originally, mm. and I was a young kid. But so how do you reconcile those things? Because obviously mm. you're still a fan. Going mm-hmm. back and realizing that James Bond was sexist doesn't necessarily ruin the films for you. My sister can't watch them. Mm. Like, she, uh, you know, she's a feminist and she's just like, oh, you know, these things are horrible. But for you, how do you reconcile this? And can you still love the Bond films even if they have those elements in them? Yeah, I mean, you you, you can't do to it what you do with a, a lot of great works of culture that have problematic representations in them because it's really not that long ago. And then some of the most egregious examples of problematic representations happen in, you know, films that are actually quite recent in the canon. I think Skyfall is one of the most abominably sexist films ever made. So you can't really use the the historical excuse uh, for it. You have to give a lot of the films a, the benefit of the doubt in terms of what they're trying to do and eventually failing it's a it's a series that kind of wants to pay tribute to changing attitudes in society and you see that very clearly with the representation of women as the film goes on and and race but it also it also wants to do justice to a formula that everyone is comfortable with and very much demands 
from these films, perhaps more than, than any other film series that I can think of. They, they want certain things to happen in a Bond film. That requires uh, politically being very, very um, retrograde sometimes. Uh, and so a lot of the, when you watch, you know, there's this kind of key films like Man with a Golden Gun or Golden Eye, where um, you can see the film is trying to talk about feminism, changes in political attitudes, but it also has a, a kind of commercial acknowledgement that, um, that there needs to be some sort of suspension of disbelief. It's, that doesn't re- kind of resolve things and it doesn't make them easier to watch or it doesn't excuse them. But that's, it really is a dialogue that's going on. It's like, how do we take this uh, character who is really, even, even from you know, the early 60s onwards, something of a dinosaur in terms of their political attitudes? And you know, how, do we, uh, how do we introduce him into this modern world every time? And that's one of the pleasures of the series. And sometimes it's very self-conscious. Sometimes it happens accidentally because they're trying to address contemporary issues and failing. It's definitely something that that works. And I think if you go back to the roots of the of the film series um, in the Ian Fleming literary canon, he he never wanted you to like James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> this is something that the film the films have kind of. Uh, have kind of drawn out of him the the idea of a, of a hero. He really really wasn't a hero or necessarily a, a likable character. And I think when certain actors have drawn on that fact, there's no particular reason that you see that that what Bond does and how he interacts with the world is necessarily a, a, a template for how we should all act in a in a society. And in fact, it's often the opposite of that. If you're adding kind of a, a heroism to what Bond does, uh, that might say more about you as an as an audience member than it does about the film itself. He really is this kind of blank canvas, and we don't know what his politics are, and we don't know. We just know that you know he makes some dubious moral choices, and I think that you know that was occasionally the Bond films are, are more complex than we give them credit for in that sense but which is all my way of kind of hedging around the fact that they are very they are politically um very difficult films and and um i think it, it's it's interesting to to sort of see where we go with that and we would think about it in terms of of sexism and, and racism but the the series is also when it whenever it's a kind of expressed explicit ideological beliefs it's even more difficult. I mean, you know, there's a there's a Bond film from the late 80s, Living Daylights, Timothy Dalton's first film, where Bond is sort of an honorary member of the Mujahideen, which um, is a sort of, is, is a very strong, I mean, uh, some other Hollywood films did it at the time because the US was on, on the side of Afghanistan um, against the Russians. But but nonetheless, you know, um, that's re- that really is backing the wrong horse politically. <laughs> what the hell are you up to, Cameron? Selling dope? Not so loud. That's the chief of the Snow Leopard Brotherhood. Who? He's the biggest opium dealer in the Golden Crescent. I've worked for them from time to time. I couldn't care less if the Russians die from my bullets or their opium. Besides, we need the money to buy arms. Uh, I think it's it's a very it's a very complicated thing, and uh, you have to look at them in context. But at the same time, you don't absolve them for for being particularly egregious and you also you know it, it's not re- it's not a historical question because uh, some of the more recent bond films have have been the worst in terms of the political mistakes they've made one of the appeals for me is that even though there was sexism involved and that uh, some of the female characters are kind of you know degraded 
But the lead girls, lead women, they were always called Bond girls. They were they were rarely called Bond women. But when I was growing up, they were called Bond girls, even though they were adults and all. But um, characters like Pussy Galore, she might have a porn star name and all that, but you don't remember her being like a submissive character or a character like she gets to kick James Bond's butt. Mm. And like to me, her character was so much more interesting than women or actresses who are being presented more as these kind of role models. Because back in the 60s, like Doris Day was supposed to be this career woman who was on her own. She bored me to death and I couldn't see her. But Pussy Galore, I'm going like, wait a minute. She runs her own airline with all these women. She ends up making this moral decision to cross the guy she's been working for. And and she does end up, you know, flipping James Bond in a fight and all that. I'm going like, I, I don't exactly see what's wrong with that. <laughs> you put your finger on a very important point, um, which is that the the quality of the of the stars involved in the films to transcend the material they're mm-hmm. given in the script. And that's true across the board, really. I mean, the example you give with, with Pussy Galore, and, you know, that's a lot to do with Honor Blackman's performance. Who are you? My name is Pussy Galore. I must be dreaming. I thought I'd wake up dead. Tranquilize again. Knock out, sir. see. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Can I do something for you, Mr. Bond? Uh, Just a drink. A martini, shaken, not stirred. Won't you join me? Not on duty. I'm Mr. Goldfinger's personal pilot. You are? And uh, just how personal is that? I'm a damn good pilot. Period. Well, that's good news. Uh, By the way, where is our host? He flew on ahead. This should be a memorable flight. You can turn off the charm. I'm immune. In On Her Majesty's Secret Service, Diana Rigg has a, you know, she's not, in terms of the script, she's not really treated differently than many of the of the Bond girls or Bond women. But there is something about her which transcends that and seems incredibly strong, no matter how much the script wants to, her to submit to Bond, um, even to the point of marrying him. Tracy, an agent shouldn't be concerned with anything but himself. I understand. We just have to go on the way we are. I'll have to find something else to do. Are you sure, James? I love you. I know I'll never find another girl like you. Will you marry me? And, you know, that that goes with a, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the villains as well, who, you know, are often kind of terrible uh, racial caricatures, uh, Yafet Koto in Live and Let Die, is written in a way that's, you know, um, almost worse than Ian Fleming's original version of the Mr. Big character, which is one of the most hideously racist representations in literature. And yet, because of, you know, because of Yafet Koto, who is one of the, you know, one of the suavest and most powerful, charismatic character actors that I could possibly think of. 
Kananga, poppy grower in thousands of acres of well-camouflaged fields protected by the voodoo threat of Baron Sandy. And as Mr. Big, distributor and wholesaler through a chain of Philly of Soul restaurants. Wholesale? <laughs> Sell heroin for money? My apologies, I'm sure you simply give it away. Excellent, Mr. Park. That's precisely what I intend to do. Two tons of it, to be exact. When entering into a fiercely competitive field, one finds it advisable to give away free samples. Man or woman, black or white, I don't discriminate. Two tons of heroin with a street value well over a billion dollars, nationally distributed free. Well, that should make a certain group of families rather angry, wouldn't you say? Angry? Why, my dear Mr. Barn? It'll positively drive them out of their minds and subsequently out of the business. Quite ingenious, sir. <laughs> A sort of junkies welfare system. Well, merely until the number of addicts in the country has doubled, shall we say. Then I will begin to market that acreage that you blundered into the other day. That heroin will be very expensive indeed, leaving myself and the phone company the only two going monopolies in this nation for years to come. You, you remember him as this, uh, as this really elegant Bond villain who's kind of na- nailed the characterization and you don't think about how he's written, you think about how he's played. And I think that's really helped, really helped across the years. All right, so you brought up On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yes. Which is, for Bond fans, a really interesting film. This was the film Sean Connery had decided not to return. Uh, they put this Australian actor, George Lazenby, in the role. You mentioned Diana Rigg, who has, is probably one of the top Bond girls. Her and Honor Blackman are just the cream of the crop. So you've got this film, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which it's like I, I play these games where, you know, you go like, oh, if you could go back in time, what would you do? And people have these, you know, mm-hmm. things where like, oh, you know, I'd stop this horrible thing from happening. And I'm like, no, there's only two things that I want to do. I want Sean Connery in On Her Majesty's Secret Service and I want the sequel to Buckaroo Banzai. Like those are the two things <laughs> I would fix in the universe, as shallow yeah. as that may be. But um, what are your feelings about Honor Majesty's Secret Service? Because on a certain level, it's one of the best Bond films in terms of kind of its construction. And it's got Diana Rigg. But it, it has – some people love George Lazenby. More people kind of have issues with him. So what's your take on this one? Uh it, it it is my – I think it is the best Bond film. It's certainly my favorite Bond film. I, I've heard this before. Most people say, well, what if Sean Connery <laughs> – did on a Majesty's Secret Service. <laughs> My view is, what if George Lazenby had done Diamonds Are Forever? <laughs> That's the kind of alternative uh, Bond history that I'm interested in pursuing. Yeah, I mean, La- Lazenby was was the wrong choice in so many ways, primarily because he wasn't an actor. <laughs> I mean, that's number one. It's got to be number one on your list. He, he, he was a model who kind of finagled his way into the role by lying to the Bond producers about his acting background. And they kind of... They felt that that was enough because he'd lied to them and got away with it. They, they thought that, that that gave him an acting resume, which is a really interesting form of casting. And I don't want to discount that because they were definitely onto something. And they sort of tested him in a very perverse way where they, um, they brought uh, stunt actors to his hotel room to, to fight him to see if he could, you know, so, so that it, was, it was a really experimental way to cast a Bond. And while... While it ended up with an actor who's 
naivety was kind of there for all to see on screen and and especially vocally he couldn't really handle the role and he had to be he had to be dubbed with his own voice and also the voice of British character actor George Baker at one point which is actually part of they turn that into part of the plot because he's pretending to be a um, he's in disguise as a character who we know is played by George Baker but so the so that there there are some actual interesting consequences to George Lazenby not being an actor and and they managed to work with that. Of course, the biggest challenge is that this is the most emotionally demanding role for a Bond to play. And, you know, there are points in the movie where you think he, he's not living up to that. And then the final scene of the movie where, spoiler alert, I mean, <laughs> decades old, there's got to be an embargo yes. <laughs> on that by now, where his his wife of, well, let's say two minutes in screen time um, is uh, is killed. But darling... Now we have all the time in the world. <laughs> Say flowers! He's got a point. We do look like an ad for a flower shop. And that reminds me, I didn't even send you flowers. Anyway, you have given me a wedding present. The best I could have, the future. Mrs. Bond, shut up. And don't eat it all at once. He loves me. Instinctively. Infuriatingly. Intensely. In. 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 in? Indubitably. <laughs> First a boy and then a girl. Blofeld. Blofeld. The final scene is him left with uh, her corpse, and he's um, kind of in a traumatized, grieving state, and he's trying to explain to a, a highway patrol officer what's happened. And uh, they, this is one of the very, I mean, must be one of the only points in the Bond film series where they quote directly from the, from the books. It's a verbatim how it, how the end of um, Ian Fleming's On a Majesty's Secret Service, which was something that Lazenby had read and was moved by. And he delivers that scene as well as I think any actor could. He absolutely nails uh, the emotion in that scene because he really felt it. He he read the book and he cried and it, it was um, he un he understood what was going on. It's all right. It's quite all right, really. She's having a rest. We'll be going on soon. There's no hurry, you see. We have all the time in the world. Um, and there was, I think, I think there was. He had life experience of similar uh, grievances. So. In the end, you know, when you get to the end of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, he's George Lazenby's figured out how to act. So I would have loved to have seen what he did in Grand Are Forever because I think if I, I think if he'd have stayed in the role, they would have made it something of a sequel, and or at least they would have certainly referred to the fact that um, he was a he was a widow, and they would have made that part of the movie. In the way it turns out in the in the Connery continuation, they just sort of forget about it, and you can. 
you can remember it if you want, but if you don't want to, it doesn't cost you anything in terms of the film. But more broadly, in terms of Honor Majesty's Secret Service, I just I, I think it's it, it is it is almost a cliche to say it's your favorite Bond film because it's it's most unlike uh, anything else in the Bond canon. But the undeniable quality of of the cast, of the script, of the action sequences, the fact that you know you 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 have a, a design not only to build the 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 depth of the characters, the complexity of the drama in the film, but also that you actually want to do something slightly experimental and artistic with the form. One of the cliches of, of, the, of the Bond film style is that this kind of nod and a wink to the audience, that we refer to everything that we're doing. We tell the audience what's going on and we share a joke with them. Well, they do that in On Her Majesty's Secret Service on a whole nother level to almost where the point, it's like a Jean-Luc Godard film. It's so, you know, it's, self, it's self-reflexive in the way that it deals with film style and film art. And um, to do that, in the late 60s, on the back of, of the Connery films, I mean, it's not only brave, it's ridiculous. And it didn't pay off. It wasn't very successful, and, and Lazenby immediately left the series, although he was contracted to do another, uh, at least another four Bond films. And yet it also works as a Bond film. One of the great criticisms of License to Kill, which is Timothy Dalton's um, last Bond film, was that it's a very ser- serviceable late 80s thriller. But it's not it's not a bomb film. But Honor Majesty's Service still, you know, it, it it still pays tribute to the formula while doing something amazingly different with it. And in many regards, whether it's the score Bond, Bond girls, the villains, the supporting characters uh, are some of the best you'll find in the series. But it really is trying to do something different. Uh, I mean, all the Bond films say that, and they invariably don't <laughs> manage to do it. They, every Bond film begins, we're going to do something different this time, and they very rarely do. But uh, Honor Majesty's um, Secret Service means it. And every time I go back to it, I have exactly the same feelings. It's like I, I, don't, I don't want this to be the best Bond film because that kind of cheats all the other Bond films. But it really doesn't. The quality is undeniable. And by the end of the film, whatever problems you have with George Lazenby, for me, are a result. You know, you're watching, you're watching someone on screen become an actor, not just become Bond, but actually <laughs> become someone who, <laughs> someone who's a, a um, could go on to be a professional actor if he didn't then decide to um, to leave the role. Well, it's funny because I grew up with Sean Connery as James Bond, and I was in love with James Bond. And when he left the series, I was so angry about George Lazenby taking over the role. And my initial reaction to that was just like, I hated him. I I loved Diana Rigg, but I hated him in the role. And it seriously took me decades to return to that film and see it kind of with some objectivity and I had the chance to see the film at the TCM Film Festival a few years ago where George Lazenby was there and he talked about the whole getting the role in casting and the one thing he pointed out which kind of made something click for me is he said 
He thinks the real reason they cast him was because he wasn't afraid to step into Sean Connery's shoes. He said, I'm a cocky bastard, and I don't care what anybody thinks, and I don't care if I do a terrible job. I don't care about even being an actor. But he said that that kind of an attitude was something that they didn't want somebody who was terrified to step into the role or trying to imitate Sean or something like that. And when he pointed that out, and I watched the film again, it's like, I was going, you know... I will have to say, he tries to own it, own the role himself. He doesn't try to be Sean Connery. He doesn't try to, he, he doesn't seem timid about like just taking it on. And, and I have to say, I have warmed up to the film in a broader sense um, beyond just Diana Rick. Yeah. And it, it's interesting you say that because, you know, I'm sure I can't imagine that um, the producers, Saltzman and Broccoli, would have gone into the venture without um, thinking that you know he could he could handle the role and that he would go in with confidence and that people would buy he was Bond. But what really comes across in his performance, and yeah, it might be a byproduct of his his naivety as an act, as, as an actor, is that he brought vulnerability to the role, and this was something that we hadn't seen really at all with John Connery. Uh, and it's something that's a that's a, a characteristic of the more modern Bond films is that Bond has some, you know, he's he's fragile in a way we didn't see before. And uh, there was a little bit of that in the early Conneries. But by the time he got to You Only Live Twice and he's not as interested in playing the role anymore, he's kind of coasting a little bit. He's really kind of playing it more for laughs. Lazenby is kind of interesting in the sense that he he seems to be more of a prototype for, for the Daltons and the Craigs who have... Uh, you know, the, the, they're slightly more unsure of themselves, which is closer to the way Fleming envisioned the character originally than, than what Connery did. I, I think I think all, all the Bond actors have really kind of just wandered into the role, which is something that you don't see often when, when actors take over these iconic roles. I mean, you know, um, when Roger Moore took over uh, with Live and Let Die... Certainly, the the script is still written in that kind of Connery mold, and you know he's doing things that don't really suit the, his portrayal of the role. But in terms of how he's playing it, he he really does look like he's been playing he's been playing the character for years. Black Queen on the Red King, Miss Solitaire. My name's Bond. James Bond. I know who you are what you are and why you have come. You have made a mistake. You will not succeed. Rather a sweeping statement, considering we've never met. There's only been six Bonds, uh, but none of them look particularly nervous when they take over the role, which is, is hard to understand, given how much history there is there and the, the legacy of it. And I think that's a credit to the producers and finding these actors who don't seem to have this problem with what they're stepping into and that, that that would be a huge part of the way that you would cast the part. Well, and Roger Moore came off of The Saint and and uh, The Persuaders. And so, I mean, he had a history of playing kind of these iconic roles. So it was yeah. almost like, all right, I'll just shift, you know. And, and he wasn't, no offense uh-huh. to him, but, I mean, he, he was kind of the most cartoonish of the Bonds uh, on a certain level. And so, I mean, he was kind of playing himself in, in all those series and that, and he just kind of, like, slid into it and was like, all right, give it a little tweak and I'm Bond. Right, yeah. It, 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 it did feel that way. He was Fleming's pick for the role, uh, even back 
uh, when the series started in 62, that, that um, Ian Fleming apparently picked him as his idea of, of what Bond was. And that's another, that's another interesting part of the, the Bond series is there's only ever been a very small pool of actors who've ever been considered for the role. Timothy Dalton was considered to take over when Moore did. Uh, Moore was considered to start the series. Pierce Brosnan could have easily taken the role when, uh, when Dalton did. So up until Daniel Craig, really, there's really only been a handful of actors who can play it. And I think, I think that speaks to a kind of an intimacy and almost kind of Bond family, uh, which sets it apart from other big franchises, which make effort to find the biggest star possible to fit into a certain role. And, you know, we, we want this actor to kind of bring something to the, to the Bond. Up until, up until Daniel Craig, the options were very, were very limited. I think that... That helps with the transition from bond to bond. You sort of you're not you know you're not really surprised. And in the mid '80s, it could have gone to Pierce Brosnan or it could have gone to Timothy Dalton. In fact, you know, Pierce Brosnan basically started playing Bond, and it was only kind of a contract dispute with Remington Steel that that dragged him back. And uh, Dalton, who was the original choice but then stepped aside, came back into the role. So it it's it's a very and would use the word incestuous um, franchise, but compared to you know, given how big it is and and how world beating a film series it is, it really is something that's very that has a real intimacy about it. Now you mentioned Timothy Dalton. Mm. I love Timothy Dalton, Me too. and I enjoy his performance because you mentioned this vulnerability, and yeah. he he seemed to to be this kind of a little bit more emotional Bond. But I feel so bad for him because he got saddled with the worst Bond movies, like as a whole. Like the films just didn't seem to work that well. And I felt like if he'd been given a real shot, I think he could have been a great Bond and been in films that were really good. But the the two films he was in just seemed to be the worst crafted ones. It's funny. In, in doing, um, doing the show at the Fringe Festival... The love for Timothy Dalton radiates through the room. As soon as I mentioned his name, I had two whoops in different audiences for, for his name. And this is something that I've seen since Daniel Craig took over the part from people who were admirers of Timothy Dalton when he was actually making the films and saw in him a really excellent kind of studied portrayal of Bond as a, as a character. To then see Daniel Craig get all the, the kudos for doing that critically. People who saw Dalton sort of thought, well, what's the big deal? Timothy Dalton was doing this 20 years ago, over 20 years ago. I know Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, when they were making Hot Fuzz, which stars Timothy Dalton, that they said exactly the same thing during the publicity. You know, they were asked, why, why, you know, why bring back you know Timothy Dalton and it was it was when Daniel Craig's first Bond films were coming out and they said well because he did Daniel Craig before Daniel Craig <laughs> you know he he did all all the same things and um and audiences weren't ready for it Roger Moore had been doing the role for over a decade I mean that's that's also very important to point out I mean it's like following Tom Baker in Doctor Who very much in terms of longevity that's more than one generation that for whom Roger Moore is their only bond and so he had that to deal with he also had to a, a huge change in the direction of the tone of the films that he had to manage and this is a lot for, for one man to do. And I think he did it brilliantly. And people are seeing that now going back to it. His films are played down. Uh, Living Daylights is played down because, as I mentioned before, you know, he's, he's 
allied to the to the Taliban. <laughs> so it's not a film that people are, are want to be reminded of too much. Uh, and License to Kill was seen as a failed experiment in changing the Bond formula. So he's kind of saddled with a lot of things that that as an actor in terms of what he was doing, you know, he got the blame for for things that were nothing to do with his performance. But uh, when you look at it in retrospect, you see that he completely, he fundamentally altered the way that um, Bond films have been since. Because in every, you know, throughout the Brosnan era and throughout Daniel Craig's era, it's been kind of, it's become a new convention of the Bond films that that there are some emotional consequences for Bond within the frame of the film. And that wasn't something that was uh, necessary in, before Timothy Dalton. But it, um, his legacy, I think, really is that uh, it, it's not enough. Bond has to be something of a character. There has to be some complexity. It has to go through some kind of emotional crisis within the, the, the frame of the film. I mean, even in Die Another Day, you know, which is one of the most absurd, oh. comicalized <laughs> Bond films, there's still, you know, there's still a, there's an opening sequence in which Bond is tortured. And I think that's the legacy of, Dal- you know, I think that's the legacy of Timothy Dalton and the idea that, yes, Bond works as a serious character with layers and depths and we have to pay some kind of tribute to that in each of the films in small or large amounts. Timothy Dalton opted not to return to the series. I know they wanted him to come back with Goldeneye and that's another kind of alternate Bond history if if Timothy Dalton decides to do one more Bond film that had been Goldeneye. I mean a lot of the emotional dilemmas in Goldeneye you sort of watch and I I think Pierce Brosnan's uh, I think one of the best leading men I can think of. But there are certain scenes where you think, well, I'd like to see Timothy Dalton have a go at that beach scene where, you know, Bond's, uh, <laughs> Bond's pouring over, um, you know, he, he's, um, he's pouring over how he's been portrayed and thinking about his dead parents and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, I think he's, he's more present than we might remember. And there is a lot of, a lot of love for him, either from people who felt he wasn't given the he wasn't given the best chance when he first came out or people who have sort of seen that, that he laid the groundwork for the kind of Bond films that Daniel Craig does now, uh, that they're not possible without him. Well, you brought up Daniel Craig. <laughs> I remember when he got cast, there was such an upheaval in like the Bond fandom. Like he's blonde as if that mm. were something that would absolutely prevent you from playing the role. Uh, he's short. He's mm. the shortest Bond we've ever had. There was a lot of negativity before the film came out, but I have to give credit to the franchise because that reboot, because it essentially kind of relaunched the character in a new way. Casino Royale is probably one of my top three Bond films, and I just love the way they re-energized it, and it just felt so good to see it's like Bond is back, and you really kind of felt like, yes, he is. Your file shows no kills, Bond. But to become a double O, it takes two. How did you die? Your contact? Not well. You needn't worry. The second is... Yes. Considerably. The man was Le Chiffre, private banker to the world's terrorists. Which would explain how he could set up a high-stakes poker game at Casino Royale in Montenegro. If he loses this game, he'll have nowhere to run. 
You're the best player in the service. The Treasury has agreed to stake you in the game. But if you lose, our government will have directly financed terrorism. I will be keeping my eye on our government's money and off your perfectly formed house. You noticed. The fan response was absolutely ludicrous. And, you know, I mean, if you take, if you go back to, to 1962 and the things that people were saying about Sean Connery, oh, yeah. you know, how he, he couldn't be the Bond of the, of the Fleming series. He was too working class. He was too burly. Um, he was Scottish. He yeah, he was Scottish. Exactly. He was Scottish. And, you know, and then you flash forward to a few years later and Ian Fleming's changing the, the, <laughs> the nationality of the character because the idea of Bond is now um, inseparable from Sean Connery. Mm-hmm. And I think Daniel Craig's pulled off a very a kind of similar, you know, a similar feat, really, in kind of embedding himself into the Bond character. And it, I think crucial to that, that reboot, um, and it was really the first time that, that the the Bond films had done an, a, a chronological reboot in the way that we're familiar with now. You know that up until that point, mm. it was sort of accepted that although it didn't it didn't make any sense in 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 terms of you know physical time that Bond was sort of the same character and carried over whatever experiences he'd had from previous films. This was very much uh, this is Bond's first mission. It was uh, contemporary with Batman Begins and a, a, a bunch of films that were trying to do the same thing, taking the character back to their origin story. In literary terms, Casino Royale was the origin story, and it was a it was um, the perfect choice uh, of source material. But uh, the director Martin Campbell, who would also relaunch the series in Goldeneye ten years before. Um, I, I think he needs to be given amazing credit. He, he's twice taken the series from oblivion, uh, whether it be um, artistic oblivion or just, you know, no one wants to see these films anymore. So how do we m- make it happen? In two completely different ways with Casino Royale and Goldeneye, which are not 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 similar <laughs> in any ways you can, you can think of. Yeah, they, and they really, they kind of uh, introduced the idea of Bond as a blank canvas that we would gradually put experiences and emotions onto uh, Daniel Craig really embodied the idea of um, this is a this is a clean slate you know whatever happens to Bond in these films that's what he will become um, he has no kind of essential personality or um, which, which again is, is is riffing off what other kinds of films at the time the the Bourne series or even in television with um 24 you know that very similar kinds of of ideas of you know how you how you shape a character from uh from from a a, a kind of empty mold almost i think it did a, a terrific job and and it, it's really interesting how little things have changed from the connery era in terms of the, the way the the process of behind the scenes issues that that Craig is going through now with his disillusionment with the series which he's been very public about he's creeping into his fifth film now which will kind of put him on a par with uh, Connery and You Only Live Twice and it'll probably be his last film last film as Bond as well and he's starting to kind of do the same things where he's he's becoming more relaxed in his performance style and he's starting to coast a little bit he's starting to coast a little bit in, in the last couple of films so it's really it's really interesting how little things change you know this these uh there's remarkable consistency in the way these films have been produced you know decades of film history and yet they're still making Bond films the same way that, that they always did and the actors are still sort of doing the same thing 
and in the show, I, I mean, I make fun of him perhaps more than any other of the, bon- say, the Bond yeah. actors um, <laughs> for, be- for being, you know, being kind of rough and tumble and a, 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 a stroppy teenager. <laughs> I don't like fancy things anymore. This isn't going to be a Bond film. This is going to be a Daniel Craig in a bow tie film. <laughs> <laughs> He's still the best choice. Stupid gadgets. Never use them. That is a kind of caricature. I had tremendous respect to him as a, as a character actor and his approach to the role. I mean, there's a point at the beginning of Casino Royale where you're watching and you think, wow, this is really going to be something different. And it's when he, he runs out of ammunition during an a- action sequence and he throws his gun at the person he's fighting. That and then, of course, the famous example of the, of the martini, you know, do I look like I care? When, when he's asked how he wants his martini prepared. There is something very bullish about that. I mean, it does go back to Dr. No and how Connery played that in the film. It's, uh, and there, there are certain moments where there really is... The, the, the script writers give him things to do that say, you really don't know who, the, who Bond is. In Dr. No, he shoots uh, an unarmed man um, repeatedly for no other reason than it seems statistic satisfaction. And you sort of wonder who you know who is this character? What's his moral code? And I think Daniel Craig's reintroduced that that idea as everything we're familiar with has been stripped away. And uh, and one of the other big controversies, if you can call it that, um, at least in fan terms, was the lack of gadgets. You know, the absence of Q from the the at least the, the what the first two Daniel Craig Bond films, Money Penny. So there was there were there really was a sense of of stripping away and. Uh, one of my favorite sequences in Casino Royale is when uh, he's trying to resuscitate himself using um, a hospital which is inside a car, and I sort of <laughs> think it's it's like, well, this is this is pretty low tech. Now you know we're we're getting we're getting to really low tech, you know, and anyone can come by and figure out, oh, you plug you plug this lead into his heart, you know, back into his heart, and he'll be resuscitated, and that's uh, you know that's um, that's a different level from the invisible car. But it, it's almost a it's almost a reaction to that that in some senses. But and I, the other thing to say about Casino Royale, which again is nothing really to do with Daniel Craig, a little bit to do with with Martin Campbell, but also the the screenwriters. An hour of screen time is devoted to a card game, and that that's one of the I think it's one of the bravest choices in popular cinema that I can think of. With this chip exchange, we enter the final phase of the game, which means no more buy-ins. The big blind is now $1 million. They really make an attempt to say, we're going to adapt this book, which is really one set piece, you know, an extended card game. Monsieur Bond? Check. Check. 24 million in the pot already. Check. Check. All check. Four players. All in. Six million. Bet. Six million. All in. Five million. All in. Bet is six million. Race. Race. Twelve million. Heads up. 
and they do complete justice to that and, and introduce suspense into the Bond films, which is something that it, it never really been... Suspense and dead time and all these things that seem antithetical to the Bond films. And not only do they work, but, uh, it's one of the most satisfying set pieces in any Bond film and there's no plane straddling or... <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, no um, underwater sequences or anything elaborate. You know, it really is just uh, pe- people sat around a table playing cards for for at least an hour of screen time is devoted to that. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of very, very brave choices in that film, which a lot of which pay off. And I think that sort of explains why the. Uh, other films in the Daniel Craig series have not really been able to kind of live up to that, mm. especially Quantum of Solace coming straight off. Uh, I mean, there's problem, there, there were problems with that film anyway, but coming off Casino Royale and what it had to follow conceptually, is al- it, it's almost impossible to, to match up to, to people's expectations of that. And, and, and you gave it, you ribbed it quite a bit in your show. The end of Casino Royale. James Bond will return in... Uh, uh, what's it called again? Um, Wisnos of Solitude. Quantum of Solace. Yeah, which is, and I, I don't, I don't actually, you know, I, I think it's a, again, you know, you go back to License to Kill. It's a perfectly serviceable thriller, but, uh, but not really a Bond film. Casino Royale was not the first film Judy Dench was in, but I think it was the first film where, like, you really found her memorable mm. as M, and she has been a wonderful addition, I think, to the series. Yes, she she really is. Now, um, I have to be very clear. I I'm not a big fan of Judy Dench in in her other endeavors as an actress, and yet I think I think she's a great M and. When when she started out in Goldeneye, they were they were very specific about her being a kind of a feminist antagonist to Bond. You don't like me, Bond. You don't like my methods. You think I'm an accountant, a bean counter, more interested in my numbers and your instincts. The thought had occurred to me. Good, because I think you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur, a relic of the Cold War, whose boyish charms, though wasted on me, obviously appeal to that young woman I sent out to evaluate you. Point taken. Not quite, W7. If you think for one moment I don't have the balls to send a man out to die, your instincts are dead wrong. I've no compunction about sending you to your death. But I won't do it on a whim, even with your cavalier attitude towards life. And it, it, was, a, it was necessary, but, she, but you know, that, that didn't really play to her strengths as an actor. Uh, I think that, you know, to, to make her a political issue... Which, which she effectively was, in, in, certainly in Goldeneye. Uh, although her scenes in Goldeneye are, are really excellent. But when, once she's kind of relieved of that, and, and as, as the Brosnan film works through, she kind of cools towards him, and you get the sense that they're starting to have the original relationship of M and Bond, which, is, which I think Fleming always imagined as a kind of surrogate, pa- surrogate parent, mm. uh, especially because uh, in Bond's origin story, he's, he's um, orphaned. Um, and adopted, uh, and that's been brought back in recent Bond films. But yeah, once she gets into Casino Royale, uh, it's it's her first her first scene. I think in Casino Royale, she says 
almost exactly the opposite dialogue that she says in her first scene in Goldeneye. Mm-hmm. It's so there's a sense that that M is um, M has been reset to something that yeah. uh, that it always was. You know what? What? And again, this goes back to like political. Sometimes the problems you have with the film politically are actually quite good for your film for your actual film pleasure, because she comes she comes straight into the film and she you know she said I miss the Cold War and you know you spies used to have the decency to defect, which are just great lines of dialogue anyway. But the, philosophically, it marks her out as as someone who belongs to that old order of the Secret Service, which was the which was always the original idea for M that he represented the old guard um, and and she she completely embodies that and she's kind of skeptical of this new young agent and his maverick ways and that's that's the original relationship between Bernard Lee and Sean Connery and interviews with Judy Judy Dench she has said that she hears the voice of Bernard Lee in her head when she plays M um, Bernard Lee playing um, M uh, and up until Moonraker so through three James Bond actors, and I think that's wonderful, and that that really speaks to the the sense that she does have this. She understands the tradition of the role. I mean, she was originally brought in to break that tradition and shatter it, and she did a very good job of that. But I think the reason they've kept her around that they've kept her around because she, she she's been flexible. You know, she's been flexible, and she understands the tradition of the role, and she understands that that this is a great character actor part if you play it the right way and the right way is to play it like <laughs> play it like Bernard Lee originally played it which is not to take anything away from the actors who played it since but it's just you know it's just character actor logic that there's one good way to play this role Bond this may be too much for a blunt instrument to understand but arrogance and self-awareness seldom go hand in hand so you want me to be half monk half hitman any thug can kill I want you to take your ego out of the equation and to judge the situation dispassionately. I have to know I can trust you and that you know who to trust. And since I don't know that, I need you out of my sight. Go and stick your head in the sand somewhere and think about your future. Because these bastards want your head. And I'm seriously considering feeding you to them. And uh, I think she's she absolutely, she absolutely nails it. I mean, I think... Skyfall is sort of interesting in that uh, it, it's kind of giving into the cult of Judy Dench a little too much for my like for my liking. And you know they let her read a poem, and I sort of think, well, you know, it, 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 like are we are we are we just saying goodbye to a to a you know beloved character actor, or, or are we you know is this is this is this really necessary you know to to add another ten minutes of the film to say goodbye to Judy Dench? But I mean, she played she played the role as long as uh, as long as Bernard Lee did, perhaps even in longer. I'm not sure of the actual timeline, but certainly they, certainly they they matched each other. So it's it's very 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 significant um, part of the canon. Of course, you know the first thing that happens in Spectre is she comes back from the dead, oh, which is just. Um, uh, which just says, you know, and it makes it very hard for Ray Fiennes to to sort of um, put his individuality on the role, uh, even though that is supposed to be returned to a more traditional M, mm-hmm. um, in some senses, in the sense that he's he's male and he smokes a pipe. But uh, but she, I really think she she was the one who carried on the spirit of Bernard Lee. Mm-hmm. And I do want to talk about Q a little bit. Mm. Uh, Q is such 
a fun character. He's always poor poor Q. His his work with all the gadgets is never respected by mm. uh Bond. And he went through I think he went through more films than any other actor in the Bond series. He must have done. But um and he was and by the end he actually got to go out into the field and was quite charming in in an unexpected way. But Desmond Llewellyn was the actor of what are your feelings about Q? Um well this I mean, it's one of those great uh filmmaking legends of, you know, a, a, a an actor who's brought in essentially to do a bit part and ends up staying for decades and becomes the most essential part of the franchise. I mean, I'm trying to think of other examples of this. There's Paulie in The Sopranos, who has a similar kind of trajectory. But but really, I mean, th- that is this greatest example. You know, uh, in the original books, there was no Q character. It was just Q, Q branch. It was an entity. And the, the films kind of started with that in mind. Um, that there's, there's, he, he doesn't appear until From Russia With Love, and when he does, he's he, he's got a... Um, he's he's just a kind of uh, incidental character called Major Boothroyd, and he's just the person who brings Bond the, his um, his equipment from Q Branch. So he's just a he's kind of a delivery mechanism, really. An ordinary black leather case with twenty rounds of ammunition here and here. Now, if you take the top off, you'll find the ammunition inside. On the side here, flat throwing knife. Press that button there. Now she comes. Inside the case, you'll find an AR-7 folding sniper's rifle, .25 caliber, with an infrared telescopic sight. Then, if you pull out these straps, inside are 50 gold sovereigns, 25 in either side. Now, watch very carefully. An ordinary tin of talcum powder. Inside, a tear gas cartridge. That goes in the case against the side here like that. It's magnetized, so it won't fall. Shut the case. Now, normally to open a case like that, you move the catches to the side. If you do, the cartridge will explode in your face. Now, to stop the cartridge exploding, turn the catches horizontally, like that. Then, open normally. But then something about the actor and his chemistry with Connery and also the changes that they, that the series made during Goldfinger, which was to, to stress technology, stretch this idea of espionage as this very kind of uh, elaborate thing, which is something that really only starts with Goldfinger. That just turns Desmond Llewellyn into... In, into a, you know a full blown character and and it's those scenes in Goldfinger that really shape him and and he's he's not the 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 dynamic between between Q and Bond hasn't really changed since no matter what actors playing him uh, and that's all from from uh, from it's really interesting if if you go back and watch Goldfinger it seems as if Bond the the scene is kind of the first scene with Q where he's given the Aston Martin. It, it plays as if 
we've seen this scene so many times yeah. before. And Connery is acting as if, you know, this always happens with Q. And of course, we've never really seen Q yeah. before. He hasn't been a character before. And uh, so it, it's wonderful that the very first encounter between Bond and Q, where he gives him a piece of technology, plays as if all the, o- the other ones, it's not actually, the, the history it's referring to doesn't exist. But the way, it, the way it's written and the way Connery reacts to him and the way that uh, Desmond Llewellyn sort of talks over Bond and and uh, gives these elaborate explanations, it just it, it immediately fell into a, a a double act that seemed like it had a long history. And incidentally, we'd appreciate its return, along with all your other equipment, intact for once when you return from the field. Oh, you'd be surprised the amount of wear and tear that goes on out there in the field. Anything else? Well, I won't keep it for more than an hour or so, if you give me your undivided attention. That's kind of stay that sort of stayed all the way through really what i think is so brilliant about desmond llewellyn's performance is that he he really is a the the uh the traditional straight man act to bond we've installed some rather interesting modifications you see this arm here now open the top and inside your defense mechanism controls smoke screen oil slick rear bulletproof screen and left and right front wing machine guns. Now this one I'm particularly keen about. You see the gear lever here? Now if you take the top off, you'll find a little red button. Whatever you do, don't touch it. No, why not? Because you release this section of the roof and engage and fire the passenger ejector seat. Ejector seat? You're joking. I never joke about my work, 007. The technology becomes more and more absurd as the films go on, but he remains the same kind of staunch, straight, this is serious, pay attention to this. So it's this, it's this beautiful kind of double, uh, this kind of wink to the audience. It's like, you know this technology is ridiculous, and yet I'm going to treat it as if it's real science, as if it's, as if it's you know, completely possible. And that takes us all the way to the invisible car in, in Die Another Day, which unfortunately he never got to, he, he didn't survive to, to do, but I think that would have been a beautiful testament to I'd. I would have loved. Yes. Talking about alternate Bond history, I'd have loved for <laughs> Q to introduce Bond to the invisible car, but he gives him a remote control car, yeah, um, which is wonderful. But I th- and yeah, so he begins as the straight man, and then later on in the series, he um, he starts to get more gags. They 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 suddenly cotton onto the fact that he's he's got some really good one. Li- he delivers one liners really well. Remember, if it hadn't been for Q Branch, you'd have been dead long ago. Everything for a man on holiday. Explosive alarm clock, guaranteed never to wake up anybody who uses it. Dentonite toothpaste, to be used sparingly. It's the latest in plastic explosive. I could do with some plastic. He looks good in disguises. He starts to go out in the field. Uh, You know, they put fake beards and moustaches on him. And then... The the biggest mistake they make, I think, is in License to Kill, is they they overuse him, and then you begin to see there's a there's a real place for the supporting characters in Bond, but it isn't always, you know, the the, the more you put them in the film, you, you you don't get it's not the best use of them to just keep including them more, and in License to Kill, they they keep trying to find excuses why why Q should should be helping Bond in the field and they can't seem to find any reason as to even the screenwriters can't seem to find a way why why he's useful suddenly and so he was always a victim of that but um but I think once they got back into the into the Brosnan era it was very and of course he was getting 
he was getting a lot older, so he was limited as what he could do. But they put him back in Q Branch, and they, you know, they just did a series of visual gags in a laboratory, which is where really where he belongs. But it, it's a, it's definitely a. He's the kind of gateway to a side of the Bond films, which is which is just about fun. It's just about pure visual slapstick fun. I I think you know he's the he's the perfect person to do that. It might be a kind of airplane situation where you know they hire all these serious actors and they don't realize that they're all comic geniuses. But I think I think that's the, the same thing. You know he's he's his comic capabilities are absolutely beautiful. In Goldeneye, the, there's a a gag about a baguette, which he he nails almost like he you know almost like he's been a comedian all his life it's absolutely it's absolutely beautifully done and it's a kind of perfect tag to the scene but i mean what's kind of interesting about it is you know it it, um it's a very familiar character from british post-war culture this sort of quatermass reassuring scientist you know as 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 science and technology becomes risky and dangerous and scary with the advent of nuclear power you you need someone you need someone very straight-laced, uh, middle of the road, to kind of bring it all together and and make us think we're in control of it. And that's you know that I think that's that's where Q is best. Well, I want to talk about the Bond film that's my favorite. It's partially my favorite huh? because for sentimental reasons, but um, I think my favorite Bond, the one that I just love watching all the time, is From Russia with Love. <laughs> James Bond, that notorious, amazing Dr. No secret agent is back, and half the world is out to kill him as he fits his murderous talents against the Iron Curtain and its velvet women. To me, it kind of was a little bit more like the books. It was not as gadgety or, or you know, silly. It, it felt a little more rooted in kind of the spy world of, you know, danger and, and political intrigue and things like that. But I just... That film I just really love, even though it doesn't have my favorite Bond girl in it, but the relationships that Bond has with other characters, uh, with his contacts and with the villain who's played by Robert Shaw, Mm -hmm. that's my favorite. Yes. um, It's interesting. When you when you watch back the series and you know the, the Doctor Now is a, is is a great start to the series, but it came out of a of a television script and it really feels like it. It's almost like Dragnet in Jamaica. Um, but once you get into From Russia with Love, we start to get elements that stick with the series. And just become absolutely you know indispensable. The first real theme song. From Russia with love. I fly to you Much wiser since my goodbye to you I've traveled the world To learn I must return with love which you know is um now you know you can't do a bond film without having a um a star name do a theme song which you know um matt monroe um from russia with love was the first of those 
uh, half-naked ladies dancing on uh, in the title sequence. That was the, the first time we saw that. Uh, first time we, you know, we saw the the the, the film starting with with a circle, you know, and, and the film starts inside that. So there's lot there's there's all there's um there's lots of that, but it is an incredibly well crafted film and 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 a real attempt to uh, um, adapt a, a book that was perhaps the best known and distributed Bond book at the time. Um, famously popularized by uh, President Kennedy, who who listed it as one of his favorite uh, favorite books of the moment. Uh, but a very unusual, a very unusual Bond book, as Bond doesn't only appears in the third of the book originally, and obviously they weren't going to do that with the film. But uh, but like you say, that the 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 world around Bond, his antagonists, his contacts, is shaped is fleshed out in a way that we don't see in other Bond films. Uh, and that, that really comes from the books because two-thirds of it is, is setting the scene and then we finally get Bond uh, appearing and how, you know, how he, he interacts with it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, think, it, I think it's an, a, you know, an excellent film and, and in, terms of, um, in terms of the villain as well, I mean, Robert Shaw has yet to be bettered really in terms of um, steely, cold villains. I mean, it's the most uncomplicated villain uh, you'll, you'll see in a film, but perhaps the, the scariest. You see the headlines? British agent murders beautiful Russian spy and then commits suicide. Tell me, which lunatic asylum did they get you out of? Don't make it tougher on yourself. My orders are to kill you and deliver the lecture. Oh, I do. It's my business. It'll be slow and painful. How much are they paying you? What's it to you? We'll double it. Your word of honor? As an English gentleman? Hmm. The first one won't kill you. Not the second. Not even the third. Not till you crawl over here and you kiss my foot. It's it's a really really excellent piece of cinema, and I think it, it was also the the first Bond film that added a Hitchcockian element to the Bond film series. So there there are scenes in in the film which are very reminiscent of Hitchcock's North by Northwest and the Thirty Nine Steps. So that brings a totally different tradition of British cinema in to the Bond series that that Doctor No really didn't really didn't have. It was a very it, it was a very plain kind of. Uh, police procedural kind of storyline and from Russia with Love brought in a um a, I guess a more imagistic kind of Bond film more elaborate set pieces and and then Goldfinger kind of uh, Goldfinger goes in its own way but it's clearly influenced by by a, a kind of ramping up of the stylistic elements of the Bond films that we see in um, we see in From Russia with Love and and so so many great characters even in you know in smaller roles Kronstein this sort of chess master who devises this elaborate plan to entrap Bond in a kind of political scandal <laughs> in an international political scandal is uh, it, it's just it's just so be- beautifully done. And it's it's also interesting, and you can see that that they didn't envision the Bond films as being separate uh, 
separate entities, separate um, stories. They, they, uh, the beginning of From, From Russia with Love harks back to Dr. No and the entire reason why they're trying to entrap Bond is because he's killed Dr. No and he's starting to become a problem. We, we start, you know, it starts the, the story arc of Blofeld and Spectre um, for real. It's the, I, I think as, as, you've, as you've reminded me that it's the first time, you know, first and only time really you get, you get a Bond girl who comes back as the same character and they clearly wanted to build on that. And obviously I think Goldfinger goes in another direction. But yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a really important it's a really important point in the series and I think more characteristic of what we know and love about the Bond films crystallized into a film than, than Dr. No is, or the logic would dictate that Dr. No is the one that um, that sets the formula, but I think From Russia With Love is, but it 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 sets it in a way that is, is some of the best examples of any aspect or element of the Bond films is, is available at some point in From Russia With Love. We mentioned that Daniel Craig is on what is probably going to be his last Bond film. So this opens up this whole window again of where does the series go? Yeah. Where does this franchise go in the future? I've been resistant to the idea of a black Bond or mm. a female Bond, not because I don't want to see that in the series. I would love to see it in the sense of Daniel Craig handing the mantle over to 008, mm. and 008 is Idris Elba or is a female Bond. The only time I felt like I wanted to see Bond be cast in a radically different way was in the late 90s. I was a huge fan of Hong Kong action films. Mm -hmm. And my dream at that point was that they would give the franchise to John Woo and they would cast Chow Yun-Fat as Bond <laughs> and they would be this political intrigue about the handover of Hong Kong. And I thought, like, this is the moment where you can do something radically different and tie it into something that, like, makes sense and make the Asian actor makes sense as a Bond, you know, agent. And I felt like they totally blew that moment. But I don't know what you see for the future of Bond and where you might like to see it go. Yeah, I mean, again, this is one of the things that makes the Bond franchise different from other series of this kind is it's very much, it's a colonial story. It's a British colonial story. And it doesn't have that kind, you know, we think we think about how flexible a format like, well, I mean, this is not film, but Doctor Who is, and where where you know you can conceivably put a, a woman or person of any race or, or or any kind of makeup in that role, and it would still work because the 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 format is that open. With Bond, you know, it, it the, the the format isn't. It it, it is a, it's a story of of a kind of globe trotting white Britain who you know belongs to a to a kind of fantasy of of empire that didn't even exist when the character was first or was always severely in decline when the character was first conceived and now is 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 a is a relic of a relic of a relic yeah. <laughs> but that you know that's something that that I don't think the the bond films can do without they just have to find ways of of remapping that situation and and I think it's a testament to the ingenuity of the producers and writers that they've continued to do. They've continued mm -hmm. to do that. They've they've seen how, in a sense, what f 
Fleming predicted with with the the Bond supervillains was really was something that 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 then came back into came back with the advent of global terrorism in the in the 90s and 2000s and they were able to sort of capitalize on that and see that see that um Fleming was also almost looking ahead to a kind of Osama bin Laden figure um mm-hmm. with the supervillains he was writing it wasn't the it wasn't the state that was it wasn't states warring against each other it was these insane individuals who were creating a global chaos and so i yeah, i think that that's um that's a big problem if you want to if you want to reimagine the character in terms of gender in terms of race but it it's kind of it's interesting in a sense because you know we like George, going back to George Lazenby, you know, an Australian actor, mm-hmm. that's the first kind of post-colonial moment in the Bond films. That you know, mm-hmm. they give the actor over. I don't think there was. They probably weren't. They probably weren't kind of thinking too much about the ramifications mm-hmm. of that. But essentially saying, well, the Britishness of the character can be interpreted in a post-colonial way. You know, anyone who can be traced back to that, which which definitely opens the field to my mind to a, a Jamaican Bond. Um, not even you know, uh, or especially with the series linked to the to Jamaica and Ian Fleming's kind of link to Jamaica, mm-hmm. that that would be a, a definite route to go and and um, I you know I would I would love to see, I would love to see that, or any kind of you know West African connection. So I think there, there's definitely opportunities to do that, and the Hong Kong example is is a great one because you know the 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 idea of a, of a handover um, from Brit, of Britain of Hong Kong back to China and to to do that with a Bond, I think that that would have been a, an excellent opportunity. And John Woo, yeah. Giant, oh my God. <laughs> but um, but it's not it's it's not a it's not a series which is necessarily open to many of those possibilities in the way that that uh, so many film franchises are i just i just think you have to become continually you just have to be attuned to the fact the way in which society is changing and and, and different ways in which bond is out of step with the society yeah. that he's in now i mean there's I, i'm not a i'm not a fan of skyfall in the way that people are but the, the, the scene that that comes to my mind is is uh when um bond uh is uh, tracking a um, a villain through the London Underground, and a Q says over the headpiece, "It's like people take the train every day. Like he's never been on the London Underground before because he's he's this kind of elite guy, you know. And um, you know, he's 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 in terms of his class, he's very insulated from the rest of Britain. And I, I think I think that's that's you know that definitely with the massive social divisions in British society now, you know, there's there's possibility there's 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 better ways to talk about um, how Bond is an affront to many of the things, yeah. many of the changes in British society, other than recasting him a, as a woman or a different different um, different ethnic group. So I think there is there's just a lack of fit there. I think it's still possible that they that they will do it. I think if they are if they are going to do it, it would have to it would have to be in a sort of post-colonial sense. Then the decision is, it's like, how much do you, which is facing the the new series of Doctor Who as well. It's like, once you've done, once you've made that leap, how much do you talk about it? And how mm-hmm. much, how much do you want things to be how they always have and show people that it's possible to do diversity and yet have the formula? 
and that's going to be a huge challenge and i don't know if they'll if the producers will necessarily be up for that also going back to that idea of 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 the bond family you know the, the uh, barbara broccoli is still producing the bond films the daughter of uh, mm. albert cubby broccoli so the, so it, it it's not you know i mean obviously major film companies and and uh, major businesses are involved in the making of the Bond films but at the root it is sort of the same people who've always been producing it or as part of the same family you know only a, a small handful of people even directors um, have done Bond films so that that might affect uh, they, they might not necessarily see the wider picture of what the Bond films are I guess I the, the thing what I would kind of like to see is something something that that does what Honor Majesty's Secret Service did to the series, which is to stylistically uproot, uh, uproot the, the films. I think even when you've had you know, major directors like Sam Mendes in, mm -hmm. they've not really imprinted anything stylistically new or different on on the series, at least to my mind. Although they've done kind of character work, which, is, which, was, in, which was interesting. Those are the kind of changes I'd like to see. And, you know, um, something that... Uh, something that um, that is less conservative when it comes to the films themselves. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know flashback based Bond films, or you know, the the po the po possibilities in that field are endless. But um, yeah, I I I think I think you you get major structural problems if you try and change the the gender or or uh, race to an extent of um, of the character. A friend of mine is trying to get a movement going to get Edgar Wright to direct the next one, which I think is kind of an interesting idea. Yeah, and and it's it's really um, it's really interesting to look at the directors who've done Bond films over the years and and you know how they've how they've coped with the format because it's you know for, for years the more workman like a director mm -hmm. you were the better you were suited to a bond film i think lewis yeah. gilbert described you know bond uh, making bond films as kind of it's like just shepherding people you know there's no there's no filmmaking involved in it you just you have these giant sets um to cope with and these huge casts and you know it's about how you manipulate those um and you know it's only kind of recently that they brought they thought about bringing in auteur directors to kind of put their stamp on the series and um, Sam Sam Mendes doing a pair of Bond films, which kind of say as much about his style as a director as they do about the Bond films themselves, and that's something that the Bond films not really attempt. They've always tried to kind of efface the personality mm -hmm. of the director who's involved in it. So it's always an, it's always a um, and then, you know and then, and then there's there's great directors who have just spectacularly failed, uh, like Lee Tamahori to 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 make a decent Bond film, and Roger Spottiswood is a great documentary filmmaker, but um, also made The World Is Not Enough, which is not a great Bond film. But yet, you know, it, they, they all go into it with the same idea of producing something different uh, and, and new with the style. But, um, you know, I don't think... I think that will be interesting to see for the future, um, is what kind of director they mm -hmm. select. And, and Danny Boyle is... is um, is a, a an int interesting choice. I mean, it go it, it, it's replacing one auteur director with another, for sure. But um, it's also it's also bringing some of the pop uh, kind of pop art quality of Bond mm -hmm. back. Um, if you think of Dan Danny Boyle's kind of history with films like Train Spotting, 
Which has a Bond reference in it. Which has, yes, it has a, a Bond, and, and I, I really hope, I really hope uh, he brings some of the cast of Train Spotting into into Bond. Mm. I think they'd be excellent. That um, would be su- fun. Supporting actors. Um, oh, and. Uh, Johnny Lee Miller is, of course, the grandson of Bernard Lee. So, I mean, he would be the perfect <laughs> choice to 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 pl- uh, be some character in a Bond film. So, yeah, so I think, so, it, you know, it's possible to imagine that you'll get a very Danny Boyle-like film. But I think, I think you'll also, it's difficult to predict, but I think you'll also get something which has that kind of pop art quality mm-hmm. of, uh, of a Goldfinger or a spy who loved me that w- that mm. might not and this is a, this is a, a prediction that I'm sure will um, I'm sure I won't want on record when the <laughs> film actually comes out but I, I that it will get something that is that takes itself somewhat less seriously at least in terms of the of the visual style and the fun of the film mm-hmm. which has been Spectre has kind of made up some of that ground, I think, but but um, they uh, the, the Craig films as a whole there's not a not a great deal of of, of humor and mm-hmm. and fun about them. They, they they take themselves very seriously, and and uh, I wonder if hiring hiring Danny Boyle is to is to inject a little bit of color and and uh, um I don't I mean. Yeah, c- color and, and and pop art and pop culture, mm-hmm. and trying to to reinject that into the franchise. I see. I see. I in my head, I see it as a very whatever the next film is. It's going to be a very colorful film. <laughs> <laughs> and wait, he'll surprise you. It'll be black and white. Yeah. No. Exactly. Yes. He'll, <laughs> and he'll, gritty. It'll be it'll be all filmed in handheld cameras. Yeah. And documentary <laughs> stuff. It'll be twenty eight twenty eight uh, days later, but uh, as a Bond film. Mm. And what's going to be the future for your one-man Bond? Usually shows at Fringe kind of either vanish into the ether or go on a tour of other Fringe festivals, but it, it, there's usually not a whole lot of opportunity for people to get a second chance to see them. It's a very open show, and, and I, I feel like I feel like I definitely want to revisit it by the nature of the Fringe Festival. I, I, I was trying to be as, as live and as low tech as possible because that's that's the kind of nature of the beast. But uh, I think there's definitely a future for incorporating screenings of the films or clips from the films mm-hmm. as a way of because uh, uh, you know going back to that mystery science theater analogy, um, there there is a way in which you know you can see the show as a kind of live commentary on the Bond films. And so it'd be interesting to explore that with the Bond films playing underneath them and how that affects it. And that would fill in a lot of the gaps for the people who perhaps felt uh, that uh, they, they didn't know, they, they, they didn't know the references. Hmm. Um, and that would kind of solve the problem of foreknowledge is that you would be able to see what was, uh, you would be able to see what was um, happening and what was being parodied as it happened. So I'd, I'd like, you know, I'd like to do something in that respect Beyond, yeah, beyond that, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, it's definitely it, it definitely it definitely works as a as a solo show, and I, and I think it's um, enough of a pop culture phenomenon that it that it could come back. But I like the idea of it as uh, as multimedia, um, maybe as well incorporating some music more, recorded music more as well. I think. Um, I think my renditions of the Bond themes only go so far, and <laughs> with, with alternative lyrics to the theme songs. Um, so it'd be nice to see some of that put into some kind of original, um, original context. Um, and it, you know, it is, it is, uh, 
it is a it's a discussion of the Bond films, not simply a recap of what you see on screen. So that there is a, there is a comparative dimension to it that I'd like um, I'd like people to see. I, I'd also you know I, I don't think people believe me that certain things happen in Bond films. So I'd like to actually have the <laughs> have the uh, the the scene itself on screen. And it's like yes, Telly Savalas really is Blofeld, and yes, he really is smoking a cigarette like that because he thinks that's how Europeans do it. Yes, it is all it's all happening. Um, <laughs> so yes, and people can see Grace Jones slap herself in the face for no reason. Um, in a view to a kill, and, and, and wonder why. Yeah, so I think I think there is a, there is a there is a future for it, but uh, maybe it's more um, interdisciplinary uh, with regards to to matching up theatre and film uh, in a way that you can actually the way that you can actually see. So the Bond films aren't just in my head as I <laughs> as I as I present them to you that you can actually see some some evidence of them. Well, I'm looking forward to that. I greatly enjoyed your show at Fringe, Thank and uh, I really enjoyed sharing some Bond geekery with you. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Thank you so much. That was Tom Stewart, creator and star of The Fringe Show, One Man Bond. Thanks for spending another geeky session with listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. Goldfinger He's the man The man with the Midas touch A spider's touch Check out a new episode every other Friday. If you've been enjoying the show, please recommend it to a friend and leave a review on iTunes. It takes just a minute of your time and it's the best way to encourage new listeners to sample the show. Till our next film fix... I'm Accomando, Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. Golden words he will pour in your ear, but his lies can't disguise what you feel. For a golden girl knows when he's kissed her, it's the kiss of death from Mr. Goldfinger. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.